Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, History of the World Series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Spitzel, as always. And this is the first of many podcast episodes in which Lucas will end up being unrationally angry. Yes. Now, given the nature of this project, I am going to do my darndest to approach this series and everyone like it from a pure, unbiased, unrageful perspective. And I think this far in the past, that's going to be easier than maybe some other instances. Well, in any event, maybe this will make things a little bit easier, Lucas, because over the past couple of episodes, we have sung the praises of the aging wonder Walter Johnson, the Washington Senators. But this time we get to do something similar with another player, Grover Cleveland Alexander of the St. Louis Cardinals, possibly the best pitcher in National League history who won 327 games. And he had kind of a hard life, actually. And by the time 1926 had rolled around, he was succumbing to alcoholism. He was 39 years old. I mean, clearly on the back end of his career, and he had been in World War One. Uh, damaged his hearing because of exploring artillery on the battlefields. He married the same woman twice and divorced her twice. He also had epilepsy, didn't know when the next seizure might come. He pitched in the 1915 World Series, and the rumor was they showed up too drunk to pitch for Game 5, which forced his team to start an inferior pitcher and lose the series. But the story is almost certainly false, but it had become part of the legend by the time 1926 rolled around. And the Chicago Cubs were actually tired of all the baggage that came with Alexander and his alcoholism. So they showed to the Cardinals for $6,000 in the middle of the season. And he did well with a 9-7 record at 2.91 ERA. And he helped them win the National League pennant by two games. Although player manager Rogers Hornsby definitely had something to do with that too. I was reading through prepping for this episode and looked at that deal and I went, okay, yeah, this is definitely the spiritual godfather of the Brock for Broglio trade, which will become important in future episodes. Obviously, this is way before that, but that was just the thought that I had was, you know, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Well, Hornsby had a 317 bang average that year. And for him, that was a step back, which says something about how great he was, arguably the best right-handed hitter to ever live, because it was the only time in the 10-year stretch when his bang average dropped below 360. That is insane. But he also got some help from Sonny Jim Bottomley with 40 doubles and 120 RBIs to lead the National League in both categories. Les Bell at third base had 100 RBIs, had a 325 batting average. Bob O'Farrell, the National League MVP at catcher, hit 293 with 30 doubles. Altogether, the Cardinals scored a league-high 817 runs. So some good times in St. Louis with the hitting and the pitching as well. Flint Rem, he had 20 wins to tie for the league lead. Bill Sherdell went 16-12. Jesse Haynes, a veteran, was 13-4 with a 3.25 ERA. And Carlos Pitchers combined for National League-high 90 complete games. Alexander, meanwhile, he had a spot strike relief role to help out in that area. The uh, Cardinals as a staff, a team 367 ERA during the regular season. 
struck out 365 batters. Now, they walked 397, which, I mean, you know, those numbers aren't great, but a, a team whip of about 1.3. So, I mean, this is, this is a good staff top to bottom. You know, adding an aging Grover Cleveland Alexander certainly helps, but it's not like they didn't have the pieces prior to that. We go to the American League now. The New York Yankees are back with a 91-63 record, three games better than Cleveland. But they survived scares from Cleveland, Philadelphia, and Washington. Washington actually nearly overcame the Yankees' 10-game lead in August. So very close to three straight pens for the Senators, but it wasn't to be because the Yankees had Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Earl Combs, Mark Keening, he had a nice season at shortstop on defense. Ruth hit 372, which was second in the American League. He scored 139 runs, 146 RBIs, 144 walks, 47 home runs, a 516 on base percentage, slugging 737. Lou Gehrig, he had 20 triples to the American League, 47 doubles, 135 runs scored. Combs hit 299, 12 triples, 113 runs. So some scary stuff happening to at least this part of what will become the murderer's row. Yeah, no, and we are just a short time away. But it, it's crazy that American League pennant race, there's a New York Times article that was written September 1st, 1926, that chronicled the story of thousands of Cleveland fans who were confident that their team was going to win the pennant, even though they were six games back, so they were making World Series ticket reservations. They got within two games by September 23rd and then proceeded to lose three of their final four. So we have the Cardinals and the Yankees, which, spoiler alert, become the two most rewarded teams in World Series history, at least by the time we are recording this episode in the future. That might be different, but as of right now, that's the case. So what goes on in this memorable fall classic? Well... The Yankees have the home field advantage in the best of seven, so game one starts at Yankee Stadium. They win the first game in a pitcher's duel with Sherdell losing to Herb Pennock by a score of 2-1. to one. So not a lot of offense in this one. Both teams get a run in the first inning, and then Yankees get one run in the sixth. That's all they need to take the early lead in this series. And it was the stars of the Yankees that ended up manufacturing that run to get it. Babe Ruth led off the bottom of the six with a single off of Sherdell. Bob Musial sacrificed him over to second, and then Lou Gehrig promptly singled to right to score the Babe. And the Yankees and Herb Pennock would make that hold up. Game two, we get Alexander for the Cardinals, and he evens the series up with a 6-2-2 victory. He also got helped by Billy Southworth, who had three hits and three RBIs. So, some nice pitching by Mr. Alexander and a clutch performance by a little-known player in Southworth. That's the series up as the Cardinals steal home field advantage going into St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, that's got to feel good. You did exactly what you needed to do. You managed to get one on the road. And, I mean, even the one that you lost, it was a close game. And... Going in, I mean, a lot of the experts were talking like this was going to be a pretty even series, and so far, that's what we've got. So we go to St. Louis for Game 3, like I said. Pretty much run-the-mill stuff. Jesse Haynes, the knuckleballer, he shuts out the Yankees 4 to nothing, and he hits a two-run homer. So 
Nice day for Haynes helping his own cause. Hitting pitchers forever. You will die on that hill, won't you? I will die on this hill. I will get over it when I'm at a game and I'm doing scorecards that, you know, don't involve pitchers and pinch hitting and it being a mess. But still, I enjoy hitting pitchers and I miss it to some extent. I will say this as somebody who has already been to a National League game this year. It really doesn't make any difference if you're rooting for an American League team like me, but if you've spent your entire life watching a National League ball club, it might seem a little different. But we are getting off topic here. Let's go on to Game 4. The Yankees finally show up in Game 4 on offense. They score 10 runs off of 5 Cardinals pitchers. Babe Ruth hits 3 home runs. Two of them clear the roof in the right field bleachers and left Sportsman's Park entirely. So Babe Ruth is Babe Ruth with the series tied at 2-2. Two to two. I guess you could expect anything else. Of note, both teams actually got 14 hits in this game. But it was the Yankees scoring the most runs, although I'm sure George Herman Ruth had a lot to do with the Yankees coming out on top here. Oh, that's definitely the case. So uh, you had Graham McNamee and Phillips Carlin doing the call for Westinghouse Radio and... I don't have the actual clip, but we do have the transcript of, I believe, his third home run. And so here it is in total. The Babe is up. Two home runs today. One ball far outside. Babe's shoulders look as if there is murder in them down there, the way he is swinging that bat down there. A high foul into the left field stands. That great big bat of Babe's looks like a toothpick down there. He is so big himself. Here it is. Babe shot a bad one and fouled it. Two strikes and one ball. The outfield have all moved very far towards the right. It is coming up now. Little too close. Two strikes and two balls. He's got two home runs and a base on balls so far today. Here it is. And a ball. Three and two. The Babe is waving that wand of his over the plate. Bell is loosening up his arm. The Babe is hit clear into the center field bleachers for a home run. For a home run, did you hear what I said? Where is that fellow who told me not to talk about Ruth anymore? Send him up here. Oh, what a shot. Directly over second. The boys are all over him over there. One of the boys is riding on Ruth's back. Oh, what a shot. Directly over second base, far into the bleachers out in center field, and almost on a line. And then that dumbbell, where is he? Who told me not to talk about Ruth? Oh, boy. Not that I love Ruth, but oh, how I love to see a shot like that. Wow, that is a World Series record, three home runs in one World Series game, and what a home run. That was probably the longest hit ever in Sportsman Park. They tell me this is the first ball ever hit in the center field stand. That is a mile and a half from here. You know what I mean. Uh, That home run was measured at about 430 feet, had cleared that 20-foot wall in center field, and apparently crashed into the window of an auto dealer across the street. Or if the Bay paid him for his... uh damage but nice job uh transcribing that i'm or at least reading that transcript i never knew something like that existed i'm sure the actual recording has been lost to history but i'm glad that they've been able to record that part of it anyway yeah this was from marshall smelser's book in 1975 the life that ruth built a biography is where that transcript came from oh there it is so we go to Game 5 of the series tied at 2-2. Pennock is pitching for the Yankees. He pitches another good game. He wins by a score of 3-2. The Yankees score the winning run in the 10th inning. Tony Lazari hit a sacrifice fly. 
So the Cardinals are down 3-2 going into Yankee Stadium. What could possibly happen to let the Yankees let this one get away? Is this the beginning of Cardinal Devil Magic? Because I feel like this may be the beginning of Cardinal Devil Magic. Uh, well, we're going to find out. We have Alexander taking the mound in Game 6. And we have... Bob Shockey taking the mound for the Yankees, and Shockey has a terrible day. Les Bell has four RBIs and three hits, including a home run. Southworth is coming up again, scoring three runs. Alexander goes the distance, 10-2 the final for St. Louis. So we get a seventh game in the World Series. This is again. the third consecutive year in which we have had this happen. And I would definitely say, remember last episode we mentioned the Pirates manager had called the 1925 World Series the greatest ever played? I think we can probably put this one a little bit higher on the list, wouldn't you? I would, if for no other reason that we have not had any weird things happening because of the elements in play and no notable errors either. So I'm glad that this has been a relatively clean series played thus far. Okay, now you say that you may or may not have just jinxed it. Should we find out? Uh, yeah, we'll find out. Like we have any other choice. So we have more rain in Game 7, just like we did rain in last year's Game 7. We have Haynes going for the Cardinals, and we have Wade Hoyt, who won Game 4 for the Yankees. The Yankees strike first when Ruth hits a solo shot into right center field, but I definitely jinxed it because Keenig and Drink. Bob Musil had errors and that allowed the Cardinals to score three times. However, that won't be the last thing that we have to say on the subject of Yankee follies in this one. Indeed. Yankees score again in the sixth. Chuck Caffey of the Cardinals barely misses a catch, which allows Joe Dugan to score. So we go into the bottom of the seventh, three to two. Earl Combs walks. They sacrifice to second. Hornsby orders Babe Ruth to be intentionally walked. And this is actually one of 12 times that Babe Ruth gets walked. And can you blame them because of the four home runs they hits in this series? Well, especially going back to Game 4, which we'll have more on that here at the end. There's some apocryphal stories that I do want to get back into. But yeah, you have the reputation that Babe Ruth has, and then he's destroyed you for much of the series. Why would you let him destroy you in a Game 7? You put him on and make somebody else on that Yankee team beat you. So we get a force play for outs number two. Then we have Blue Garrick intentionally walked. Again, nice decision by Hornsby, even though there was a runner on first. So the bases are loaded with Lazari up, but Haynes could not continue the game because his fingers were bleeding from throwing too many knuckleballs. I didn't really know that was a thing, but we haven't seen enough knuckleballers in our time to really make a fair judgment on that. So he couldn't grip the ball anymore. So what happens? Hornsby calls... Grover, Cleveland, Alexander. So, can you imagine what was going through the fancy Yankee Stadium's minds when they saw Alexander having just pitched a complete game the day before suddenly take the mound in Game 7 with the Cardinals nursing the slimmest of leads? 
I mean, there's got to be a little bit of fear because of how well Grover Cleveland Alexander has pitched to this point, and he pretty much immediately rewards his manager's faith, strikes out Lazari swinging to end the threat, and so we move on. The Cardinals still hanging on to that narrow 3-2 lead with six outs to go. So let me tell you what Les Bell was thinking that day. He was playing third base for the Cardinals. He had gone nine the day before, and if he got out of this jam, he still had two more innings to go today, and he was 40 years old. Well, I think he was 39, but whatever. But doggone, there wasn't another man in the world I would have rather seen out there at that moment than Grover Cleveland Alexander. I can see him yet to this day walking from the left field bullpen through the gray mist. The Yankee fans recognized him right off, of course, but he didn't hear a sound from anywhere in that stadium. He just came struggling along, the lean old Nebraskan, wearing a cardinal sweater, his face wrinkled, that cap sitting on top of his head and tilted to one side. That's the way he likes to wear it. And we mentioned Lazari and what he could do a little bit earlier. During the season, he had a 309 bang average of 102 RBIs. It was the first time that Lazari and Alexander had ever faced each other. Alexander and Hornsby actually talked how to pitch Lazari, and Alexander said he wanted to start with the fastball high and in, and that's because if Lazari made good contact, he would hit a foul anyway. That happened. Lazari hit a foul ball over the fence down the left field line, and then Bell said now for 50 years that ball has been traveling, so... Very close to Lazari becoming a World Series hero, Bell went on to say, it can follow anywhere from an inch to 20 feet, depending on who you're listening to. But I was staying on third base, and let me tell you, it was foul all the way, all the way. And then Alexander definitely had Lazari eating from his hand. That's what the book I'm looking at is saying. He waved at two breaking balls, both low and inside, and struck out to end the inning. So, yes, Alexander does still have two inks to go, like you said, and he breathes through them, but then he walks Babe Ruth with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. So, at least Ruth isn't beating you that way, but still he represents the tying run. So, you have to think what's going to happen with Babe Ruth representing the tying run, even though he is such a power hitter. With all that power, you have to sacrifice speed. So, not really a threat to get into scoring position or is he or is he now you have to remember that i think at this point in his career babe ruth i want to say was about a 50 50 base stealer and i feel like in past episodes we've mentioned that he has been able to run a little bit now again this is you know late 1910s early 1920s babe ruth as opposed to the babe ruth that we think of when we talk about babe ruth who's all i hit dingers Yes, and by the way, the Little League World Series is going on as we're recording this episode, but no, that kid is not back. So you'd think with the situation, Ruth would be a little smarter, and you know, with his reputation, you'd think he would live up to that. But he, for reasons I don't think anyone will ever understand, he tried to throw the Cardinals off by trying to steal second base. And Bob O'Farrell easily threw him out to end the game. And to this day, it's the only time a World Series has ended on a caught stealing. The Cardinals win the World Series because Babe Ruth took off for second base at the most crucial of times. This is from a Marshall Smelser's Life That Ruth Built book once again. I believe this is from the game broadcast, but I'm not 100% sure. 
uh, assuming it was, the call was Ruth has walked again for the fourth time today. One strike on Bob Musial going down to second. The game is over. Babe tried to steal second and is put out. Catcher to second. And I guess as uh, Rogers Hornsby recalled later, Ruth, when he was called out, didn't say a word, didn't even look around or up. He just picked himself up and walked away. So as much crap as Babe Ruth surely took for this and probably broke a lot of young boys' hearts in the process because their hero failed at a big moment, the spoils did go to Grover Cleveland Alexander, if not by lauding from the crowd, just by legends being made in Alexander. So there was a legend that... Alexander, not expecting to pitch, stayed out and got drunk the night before Game 7. But here's Bell once again. All out of bunk. Now in the first place, if you stop to think about it, no man could have done what Alex did if he was drunk or even a little soggy. Not the way his mind was working and not the way he pitched. It's true that he was a drinker and that he had a problem with it. Everybody knows that. But he was not drunk when he walked into the ball game that day. No way. No way at all for heaven's sake. Which is more than I could say about Mark Burley in Game 3 of the 2005 World Series, but more on that much later on. So you have to look at what Alexander was doing you know, on the back end of his career and coming in at a very clutch moment and then just settling in and doing his job. I don't know if he would have won Series MVP had it existed back then. You could definitely make a case for it, but I'd say he would at very least be in the conversation for it. Yeah, as I was looking at the numbers, just to kind of give the full picture for the series, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander pitched in three games in the World Series, started two of them through a pair of complete games, went 2-0 and with a 133 ERA, struck out 17 guys in 20 and a third innings, and were the statistic official at the time, recorded that save in Game 7. So you can go with him... You could argue maybe a Jim Bottomley who hit 345 and drove in five runs for the Cardinals. Bob O'Farrell hitting 304, maybe Billy Southworth hitting 345, scoring six runs, driving in four. Tommy Thievenau hitting 417. I mean, there, there's a few different names that we can go with, but it's also to some extent knowing how a lot of these voting patterns would go, you'd feel like they may go towards the sentimental favorite who 100% would have deserved it in this case and probably would have given it to Grover Cleveland Alexander. Alexander would go on to pitch three more seasons for the Cardinals, and then he had a brief tenure with the Phillies in 1930 before he called it a career. It was not a great ending to his career. Went 0-3 with a 9.14 ERA that year, but he had definitely done enough, and by then he was in his age 43 season, so still probably better than what most people would have done, but Rogers Hornsby did not see Alexander's remaining time in St. Louis because he was out after this 1926 World Series. It was his first season as manager, keep in mind, and he decided that he should be rewarded. He demanded a three-year, $150,000 contract, and Sam Bredin, the owner, was so mad about this that he ended up trading Hornsby, and John McGraw all but welcomed the chance to get Hornsby, and you know he was only two seasons removed from hitting 424, and McGraw ended up 
sending Frankie Frisch to St. Louis. He was kind of a local hero in New York. And Frisch, of course, would become a legendary manager for the Cardinals. And fans were stunned when this trade was announced. I mean, the player manager of the defending world champions coming to the Big Apple and a hometown favorite having to be sacrificed to get him. The deal was actually more newsworthy than the Yankees buying Babe Ruth. That's how big of a story this was. And that's crazy to think about in hindsight, knowing how everyone talks about the Babe Ruth contract sale. And I feel like the Hornsby trade is more of a historical footnote given, you know, Hornsby's number has been retired by the Cardinals. And so, you know, I think of Rogers Hornsby, I think of him as a Cardinal. And you don't think about the, oh, he was traded because of his salary demands. By the way, $150,000 in 1926 would be worth a hair over $2.5 million today. That is something that you have to just bail your mind over. And I think it's because, well, Hornsby was a solid hitter in his day. You know, definitely one of the best of his era. He wasn't Babe Ruth, and that's why the Ruth deal gets more headlines. I mean, that's just a simple fact. That's fair. And that's weird considering Rogers Hornsby, I mean, he he won this one World Series. He was a seven-time batting champ, won a pair of Triple Crowns, was a two-time MVP winner. He won just the year before in 1925, and then he would win it with the Cubs in 1929, go figure. But yeah, no, that's just that it boggles the mind a little bit. And you have to be like, well, that's just the way the soap floats. One more kind of famous anecdote. As we go back to game four, that three-homer game for Babe Ruth, this may or may not have involved an 11-year-old boy from Essex Fells, New Jersey, named Johnny Sylvester. Allegedly, he was hospitalized after falling off a horse, and Sylvester had asked his father to get him a baseball autograph by Babe Ruth. Prior to the start of the World Series, uh, his parents sent telegrams to the Yankees in St. Louis asking for an autographed ball. Apparently, they received an airmail package with two balls, one autographed by the entire Cardinal team, and the other with signatures from a number of Yankees, and apparently a personal message from Ruth saying, I'll knock a homer for you on Wednesday. And then he hits three. And then, miraculously, the kid's condition improves. How about that? Only Hollywood could write such a script. So I guess that's a nice way to end the episode on a positive note. And it's a good segue into our next episode, which will take place in 1927. The Murders Row New York is finally realized, and they will have to put the final exclamation point in their season against the team only a couple years removed from winning the World Series. Can they do it? Tune in next week to find out. Yes, so for Lucas Smitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1926 episode. Then there were two, A History of the World Series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe, too. We will see you next time. <laughs>